also a reminder as we uh, approach Missions Week, uh, let me just remind you that this weekend uh, we're having a movie night on all of our campuses. They're going to talk about that here at the end. Uh, let me just say this, though, so it's not redundant. Uh, most of the time we've had the movie nights in the past. Uh, it kind of appeals to a certain segment. There's not a lot of teenagers or people that want to watch Charlotte's Web, which is a gift of God. Amen. But let me just encourage you. I think there's an open market uh, that we don't tap into when it comes to these movie nights. It's grandparents bringing their grandkids. And so uh, we're not opposed to a little grandparent guilt. That's what it takes to get your grandkids here and maybe build a bridge with the church. And so just think about that. It's going to be Saturday night at all of our campuses. And so take advantage of that opportunity to reach out and invite someone. Well, this morning, uh, if you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you, in fact, are your mother's favorite child, would you just raise your hand? Both of mine are up, right? Both of mine are, you know why? Because I'm the youngest of my siblings, and I believe it's absolutely true that parents stop when they finally get it right. Amen? So my parents had me, and they thought, there's no going up from here, and so let's just stop and lay all of our eggs in this basket. Well, for most of us, the subject of favoritism is just kind of a, you know, subject of good-natured ribbing, uh, ribbing between siblings sometimes, something we may joke about. But for others, uh, it's a sore subject. It's caused deep fractures in the family tree. So we began teaching uh, through the book of James a couple weeks ago. What we told you is, hey, this is one of the most practical books in all the Bible. He's going to hit lots of uh, subjects, and it's going to be fast moving. And so today, we're going to move into chapter 2, where James, who's the little brother of Jesus and the leader of the Jerusalem church, is going to teach on the sin of favoritism. Uh, the word favoritism actually means to judge on the basis of outward appearance. Any form of media that you consume, whether it's the tabloids, it's the checkout, social media, whatever it is, uh, we very quickly give testimony that we live in a culture that's impressed with the outward. Outward appearance, uh, outward riches, all the trappings of earthly power and fame, and contrast that with the economics of the kingdom of God. Now, the Bible says this in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. That while man looks upon the outside, God looks upon the heart. And that's a passage talking about King David, that when they looked at him, and he was kind of a runt, he was the baby of the family, they said, hey, this is the guy that's going to be the new king of Israel. And all of his family said, no way, look at him. He's not a fighter, he's not a warrior, he's small. And then the first Samuel says, while you may be looking on the outside, that's how you ascribe value or potential, God looks upon the heart. And so contrast that with a sin of favoritism. We share with you the book of James is really a series of tests. Tests about the genuineness of our faith. Are we, can we resist temptation? Can we endure trials? And in James chapter 2, he's going to talk about the test of impartial love. Is there a better modeling or picture of the gospel than to love people, not because of uh, what they can do or how they can perform, but because our love is impartial or unconditional. And so, James is going to show us how we often make judgments based upon the appearance and favoritism and the sin of that. And not only is it dangerous, it is absolutely sinful, right? So, James chapter 2, uh, we're going to pick up the text, verse 1. We'll read down through uh, verses 1 through 9 to start off this morning. James chapter 2, verse 1. It says, My brothers, show no partiality. As you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, 
And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he's promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. Verse 9, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Now, sometimes we can read this passage, we get uh, hung up on the idea of what he's talking about, socioeconomic differences there, rich people, poor people. The reason that he uses that illustration, it's hypothetical. He said, for suppose if a rich man, so he's kind of spinning a hypothetical story to make a point. And in that culture and context, most of the Christians in the early church were poor Jewish converts to Christianity. And so what's the issue behind the issue is the sin of partiality, not the socioeconomic differences here. That's just an illustration of what's going on in the level of the heart. And so notice this, what he says. He says, my brothers. And so he's not lamenting about the evil out there in the world. He's offering correction to what's taking place in the church. Here's why. If we can't get it right inside the walls of the church, we have no hope of impacting the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what happens in here, the overflow or ripple effect should be out there. And so he starts off with us. And so he's challenging his church then and our church now. And I want to see three truths or challenges from this text this morning. Number one is this, is you and I have to check our theology. Check your theology. If you're going to do battle with the sin of partiality, then at the root of all of this, it is a theological issue. That what you believe, what your deep theology, what you're actually living out of, will drive you to the sin of partiality or drive you away from it. Let me read verse 1 from the King James Version. The same one that the Apostle Paul used. Amen? Joke, relax, all right? He says, I'm glad no one said amen, all right? He said, my brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect to persons. That little phrase, uh, respect to persons in the King James, in the original language, it literally means to accept the face. And so what he's describing here, uh, he says, hey, if you're a person of genuine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will not just offer your acceptance to other people based upon face value or what you perceive to be their value in looking at them or being around them. Uh, one translation, the Amplified Bible, reads it like this. Here's what it says. My fellow believers, do not practice your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ and an attitude of partiality towards people. Listen to this. Show no favoritism, no prejudice, no snobbery. Isn't that great? Uh, one writer, one pastor said this. He called this passage of scripture here. That's how he titled the section. He said, the strange case of the snooty usher. Isn't that great? Usher's have been sinning ever since. Amen? And so what he's describing here is what's going on, is what's playing out, is this guy's giving preference. He said, hey, imagine this scenario. That you're giving preference to someone based upon the fact 
that this guy looks, appears to have wealth and resources, and you're equating that with influence and value. Now, in the teaching space of the early church, I don't know if you're aware of this, uh, they weren't sitting like this in pews. They definitely weren't sitting in theater seats, amen? Probably what's happening here is uh, they're sitting under a covered patio of sorts, and there's a stone wall around the perimeter, and that stone wall would create a seating section. And in people of influence, they would try to sit them in these favored seats, and people who they perceive may not have influence or value, they would end up sitting on the floor. And so can you imagine what he's spinning this tale about is this usher stepping all over himself to, to get the attention of this apparently rich man and say, hey, we don't want you sitting on the floor because clearly you're a person of influence and value. Let, why don't you sit in this seat? And the poor guy, he can sit over on the floor. Now, here's what's interesting. When you study the background of this passage and in their culture, uh, one of the things you could actually do was to rent gold rings and expensive jewelry so that you could impress your friends. Can we just be honest? This is the person who rents a car to go to their high school class reunion. You know what I'm talking about? Right? That's what's happening. So imagine the sham that's taking place here. This guy comes in dripping in rented gold, and the usher falls for it. I mean, how naive can you be, right? But guess what? James says that's exactly what we're doing. We're duped as well when we value someone, their wealth or their good looks or even their IQ or their influence, and that becomes the basis of how we treat them. Several years ago, you may not know this, the genesis of our Middletown Mission campus, uh, there was a phenomenon. So before I was uh, pastoring here, the last 12 and a half years, I was on staff at a church in Springboro and, and very similar communities, demographics, high income, high education, affluent communities. And here's what I noticed over a 16-year period, that in the four and a half years we served at that church in Springboro, there were seven church plants in four and a half years. When I got here over the last 12 and a half years, there was a period where every single elementary school, high school, every single building was occupied by a church plant. Every one of them. And all of a sudden, I began to have this awareness that isn't it interesting how God seems to be calling people to plant churches where there's lots of affluent, highly educated people. And at the same time, we looked around, no church plants in some of these other communities, and so that's why we praise God for what Pastor Michael's doing there at the Middletown Mission, because here's why. If you believe that the gospel is the hope of the world, then you better start planting churches in communities that feel hopeless. Or else, you don't believe what you're preaching. And so what's going on here? This guy in the kingdom math uh, failed to recognize their value was not in their socioeconomic class, not in their culture, not in the color of their skin, not in their IQ, but based on the fact solely that they are made in the image of God, the Imago Dei. This is the starting point to not be guilty of the sin of partiality or favoritism or prejudice. You use all those words interchangeably. Is that you have a deep theological conviction that every single person, regardless of status or wealth or influence or prominence or resources, has inherent value. Why? Because they're made in the image of God. 
That is the theological starting point. And so that's why we value people deeply. And contrast that with the world. What do we say? Network yourself with other people that might get you to the places you want to go. Get around people of influence and you too will become an influential person. We value people because of what they can do, what they can produce, how they may benefit us. But James is saying here, no, 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 listen, our value comes in the fact that we're made in the image of God. Now, if you're listening, say amen. You cannot claim to be pro-life and be guilty of the sin of partiality. A biblical pro-life ethic values people from womb to tomb regardless of their ability to produce or contribute. That is a biblical pro-life ethic. Womb to tomb, but every life has value and dignity not because of what it can produce or add or influence, but because it simply is a life made in the image of God. That's what biblical pro-life ethics looks like. And James is the hypothetical usher. He's showing favoritism to this man because he appeared to be a person who had deep value because he had valuables. And so the starting point of this, if you and I don't want to be guilty of the sin of favoritism or partiality, is to come to the deep conviction that every single person made in the image of God has inherent value and should be treated with dignity. And so the starting point is theological in nature. Can you imagine if that conviction actually governed the political arena? That we would look at people who we disagree with and we wouldn't dehumanize so we could destroy them. We would not attack people. We'd attack problems. Can you imagine if that theology seeped in and governed our social media exchanges? To quote the great prophet, Louis Armstrong, what a wonderful world that would be. And so the next challenge is past the morning, you got to check your theology. Do I deeply believe that every person made the image of God, whether it's the rich man coming in and rented gold or the poor guy sitting on the floor, that they all have equal value in the image of God? And the second thing is challenges passage is this. It's to see people through the eyes of Jesus. We love these words from the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and so, uh, in our culture, how does that play out and how do we reconcile that truth and those principles uh, in light of the fact that we all don't come from the same background, or the same culture, the same language. We're all not gifted with the same inherent IQs or economic conditions or different abilities and those kinds of things. But the reality is that is a true statement. That all men are created equal. And the Bible teaches us four facts that form the doctrine of Christian equality. Listen to this. All people are equally created in God's image, Genesis chapter 1. All are loved by God, John 3, 16. All are stained and tainted by sin, Romans chapter 3. And all are able to be redeemed, Revelation chapter 22. And so as we begin to think about this and, and with the theological truths guiding our conversations all of a sudden and informing our values and our theology, all of a sudden I begin to look at people, not as projects or not as potential platforms or influences, but people through the eyes of Jesus Christ. Now here's what's interesting. In the book of James, Jesus is only referenced two times in the whole book of James. Now I've got my own theories on that. I think that was his brother. Listen, if you're James, the brother of Jesus, don't you get tired every now and then saying, your brother's so great. Right? 
hey, aren't you Jesus' brother? And so James just says, you know what? I'm just going to put him on the side here for a little bit. Two times in the entire book. But what's interesting, it's highly likely that, that the people in this church would have actually known Jesus while he was ministering on the earth because he probably died about 14 or 15 years earlier. And what these people could attest to is the fact that Jesus was the living embodiment of what it looked like to value every single person. That Jesus is pursuing people not of uh, status or significance or those things, but Jesus is looking at people who are marginalized. Jesus is coming alongside the woman who's caught in adultery and saying, hey, I'm offering you grace upon repentance. Jesus is looking at the poor and inviting them into a relationship with him over and over. They have seen Jesus model this. One writer said this, in Jesus' eyes, there are only two groups of people, those who have been redeemed and those who have yet to be redeemed. James very easily could have been thinking about Jesus when he wrote this in verse 5. Look at verse 5, what's he say? My beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which is promised to those who love him? What James is doing is saying, hey, the gospel forces us into a kingdom math that does not make sense in the world. James is thinking about the poor Christians of the first century that had such little goods such little resources, such little political and cultural influence, and yet Acts chapter 17 verse 6 says this about the, those people, these are those who turn the world upside down. I don't know if you watch TBN. If you do, write this down, stop it. All right? Write that down. But many times what we see in the prosperity gospel that somehow... That as God increases my wealth, in turn, God is increasing my value, is totally contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know what's wrong with the prosperity gospel? It's not prosperous enough. You're offering me temporal riches when James chapter 5 says, hey, I'm a joint heir with Jesus Christ. That I've received every heavenly blessing that all the power and potential I need doesn't come from what I can accumulate. It comes from who I belong to. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27. Because can we just be honest? Sometimes what we think is this. Oh, if so-and-so would just give their life to Christ, they could have such influence with their platform. And I'm all for influential people getting saved. Let me just write this down. I'm all for everybody getting saved. Amen. But somehow, if this person of significance or influence, if we could just, if they would come to Christ, and somehow we, we could ride their backs and Christianity would just spread out through their platform and influence. Well, listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27, against that thought. Here's what it says. Instead, God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they're wise, and he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. Why? Because when that happens, who gets all the glory? The person who deserves it all, Jesus Christ. Sometimes we get discouraged by the differences uh, in our culture. I, I do. You know what I've come to be deeply convinced of? The world would be a lot better place if everyone were more like me. Amen? 
You find yourself thinking that? You ever find yourself hearing people talk and they're putting things and you're like, what's wrong with them? Why are they so naive? What's, you know, don't they understand this is exactly how you should view that or think about that or behave with those things? But guess what? The New Testament repeatedly gives witness to these differences, not out in the world, but inside the church, and yet the gospel still went forward. Listen to these distinctions within the church. Jews versus Gentiles. Greeks versus non-Greeks. Rich versus poor. Slave versus free. Circumcised versus uncircumcised. Male versus female. Young versus old. Meat eaters, vegetarians. They're wrong, by the way. Amen? Sabbath keepers versus non-Sabbath keepers. Wine drinkers versus Baptists. Write that down. And and listen, if we search the scriptures, we could uh, create this huge list. And what happens is the sin of partiality raises its head over and over in the church. And why is that? Because what we do is we say, hey, your value is whether or not, not who you belong to, not whose team you're on, but whether or not you agree with the list that I agree with. Now, you've heard me say this over and over, and we learn by repetition, so let me say it again. We do what we do because our heart wants what it wants, and our heart wants what it wants because we believe what we believe. Let me repeat that. We do what we do because our heart wants what it wants, and our heart wants what it wants because we believe what we believe. And one of the lies that we believe is that those on my side of the list have value, and those on your side of the list don't have as much value. Look at what James says about behaving that way in verse 6. What does he say we're doing to those made in the image of God? In verse 6, he says, we dishonor them. That someone made in the image of God, therefore has inherent value, should be treated with dignity. That when we show partiality, we're dishonoring someone made in the image of God. Because not, not because we don't see them through the eyes of Jesus, but because they don't agree with us on fill in the blank, whatever it is. If you're not convinced, look at verse 8. What's he saying in verse 8? He said, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. Now, James is following the pattern of his older brother Jesus and going back and quoting some Old Testament scripture, which Jesus often did. Jesus only had the Hebrew Bible. And so James actually is quoting here uh, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, which says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And, and when Jesus is questioning, he said, hey, all these commands, which one is the most important? Jesus said, here's the royal law. This is what it looks like. Remember this exchange in Mark chapter 12? One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, said, which commandment's the most important one? And Jesus answered, the most important one is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So why did James refer to this commandment as the royal law here in verse 8? Here's why. Because when you treat someone how you wouldn't treat even yourself, 
What he's saying is you're violating the royal law and you're guilty of the sin of partiality. Everybody in here has a desire to treat themselves well. Everybody in here has a desire to advocate for the things that we value. And he says, hey, what it looks like to live in light of this royal law is to do the same thing for someone else. Now, when we think about this, sometimes we think of always looking down on someone. That is the illustration that he's painting here. Looking down on someone who's in poverty, but the sin of partiality goes both ways. Sometimes we see people above us, and so we want to impress them. Sometimes we treat people poorly because we think they're below us. But hear me this morning. Whether you're looking up in amazement or looking down in condescension, you are practicing partiality and failing to love your neighbor as yourself. And so we look at people through the eyes of Jesus Christ, whether we think they're above us or below us, and we say every one of those people has value in the image of God. And so here's the third truth. We're not going to be guilty of the sin of partiality. third truth is this, is we should take prejudice or partiality seriously. And when I ascribe value to someone else based on something external, fill in the blank, whatever that is, that is a form of prejudice. That is a form of partiality. That is being guilty of the sin of favoritism. Listen to the rest of these verses. Drop down to verse 10, down through verse 13. He says, forever who keeps the whole law but fails in one point, has been guilty of all of it. And remember what he's teaching about verses 1 through 9. Here's the context. is the sin of partiality. So what, what category does he put that sin in? Well, keep reading. Verse 11. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are judged under the law of liberty, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. You see what he's saying here? He's saying the sin of partiality is a really bad sin because we don't think it's that bad at the end of the day. But the picture he's painting is saying, hey, when you're guilty of violating this truth, you're just as guilty before God as those who are guilty of murder, those who are guilty of adultery. That's why he's connecting those two truths together. We don't typically put it in the same class as adultery or murder. Listen, different sins have different consequences. He said, but in regards to our relationship with God and relationship with others, he said it's the same root heart issue. And if we're guilty of any part of the law, we're guilty of all of it. What James is saying here often is we're often blind to the sin of favoritism. So therefore, we don't take it seriously. Now, sometimes we can get hung up on the illustration that he's making here, and the rich and the poor, and we can say, oh, I would, I would never treat people who are below me in the socioeconomic ladder. I would never treat them differently. They have dignity, those kinds of things. But remember, this is a hypothetical situation. How do I know that? Because he starts off saying, hey, suppose a rich man came in. He's using an illustration. So take the principle showing favoritism on someone based on some kind of external behavior or appearance or something and put it in some different contexts in our culture. And here's some questions I think we should wrestle through. 
What do we do when we encounter someone that votes differently than we do? How do we treat those folks? You like someone, you think, hey, this is a good person. All of a sudden, you found out they vote for blank. You're like, you know what? I thought you were a good person. All of a sudden, they no longer have value in our eyes. Can I tell you a secret? Keep this to yourselves. You can value people deeply who you disagree with vehemently. Did you know that? That when we come to this conviction that everyone has made the image of God, I can disagree with you openly, consistently, even sometimes passionately, and still value you deeply as a fellow image bearer. I just thought about this. How would that affect our driving habits? Come on. I've got a friend. He said, Brad, I got deeply convicted of road rage. This is a guy pretty mellow. He said, I just find myself screaming out in the road, you know, what's wrong with you, honking my horn, those things. And he said, I begin to get convinced that these are image bearers. And he said, so what I do now, he said, when someone cuts me off, or they're going too slow, or those kind of things, he said, I just smacked the steering wheel and said, you immortal soul from whom Christ died for. I said, I don't think you're getting victory as much as you think you are, right? What about someone who agrees differently on us on moral issues in culture? Are they the enemy to be destroyed or are they the mission field to be loved? Do you see how easy it is to get into the sin of partiality and not even be aware of it and think we're fighting the good fight? You know what the good fight is? To value people deeply who disagree with me completely. You say, well, listen, these are the enemies who are destroying our culture. The Bible says even if that were true, that the mark of a follower of Jesus Christ, according to the Sermon on the Mount, is that I love my enemies. And so we can't even wiggle out from under that. And so the reality is sometimes not only do we, are we as pro-life as we think we are, we also believe in evolution a little more than we think we do. You know why? Because one of the fundamental principles of evolution is this, only the strong survive. You know how it plays out in culture, and culture war, Christianity? In the comment section on Facebook. That I disagree with you, so I'm going to dehumanize you, so I can destroy you, even all the while, pushing to the side the fact that you too are made in the image of God and deserve my love and respect, even though we disagree. Scripture says that we love our enemies. Ephesians says we're not at war with people, but with powers and principalities. And that, think about that. We're trying to destroy people who disagree with us, and Scripture says that, that that's not who we're at war with. He said if we only love those who love us in return, which is a form of favoritism or partiality, then we're uh, no better than tax collectors. And James says this, in case you're not convinced, he says, hey you're guilty of that, if you treat people based on some kind of external behavior or affluence or, you know, whatever the case is, then listen, you're guilty of the whole parts of the law. Lump yourself in spiritually. Those who are guilty of adultery and murder is what he says. Now, how do we get to this point? How do we hold a high view of the gospel and believe 
intellectually that everyone's made the image of God and therefore worthy of love and respect and dignity, even those we disagree with. How do we get to this point to say, hey, these are truths I can say amen to, but then my life doesn't line up to what I'm preaching and saying amen to. How do, how do we get there? Well, let me just offer this thought. The sin of partiality begins where all sin begins, with pride. Use the illustration he's using here, rich and poor. You know what we say sometimes is in a partiality? I worked my tail off to get where I am. I studied hard. I invested wisely. I got up early. I went to bed late. I made sacrifices. I made good choices. They should have made the same good choices that I made. And listen, the Bible has no kind words for a lazy person. Read the book of Proverbs. But the prideful position is the opposite of humbly admitting that everything I have, every blessing in my life is solely because of the grace of God. We just taught this a few weeks ago. James chapter 1 verse 17. Every good and perfect gift comes down from, from your hard work, from your ambition, from your entrepreneurial skills. No, every good and perfect gift comes down where? From the Father of lights. And when we believe that all of our hard work and whatever the case is, is the source of all of our blessing, that's a person who's never been on a mission field where people work incredibly hard, love Jesus deeply, and yet still spend their lives in poverty. And so where does partiality start with? Pride. Where every sin starts off with. We think we're the source of our good fortune. We forget the lesson from Daniel chapter 2. It says God changes the times and the season. God removes and sets kings in place. God gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. We forget that lesson. We forget the lessons from Job that God gives and takes away. We forget the lesson from James that God is the giver of all gifts. We forget the lesson of the entire message of the gospel. It says, hey, when God found me, Ephesians 2, I was dead in my trespasses and sins. I had no ability to prove my condition, yet God loved me completely in Jesus Christ. Brought me up out of the pit and set my feet on the rock of his name. But partiality says, look at me and look at you. And I've got value and you don't because of fill in the blank. And the passage ends in verse 13 with James giving us the good news, bad news. He says, here's the bad news first. Look at verse 13. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. He's saying if you're not willing to offer mercy to those who may seem to be less impressive, then God will show no mercy to you when it matters. That's the bad news. The good news, what he says, is mercy triumphs over judgment. I remember hearing a story of a pastor tell once about a conservative fundamental church that was operating during the hippie era, era. Anybody remember those days? Anybody need to confess anything? Story goes that a young man on the front end of the Jesus movement began to hear about Jesus and God began tugging at his heart and drawing him to himself. So he did the first thing that spiritually curious people did in that time period. You couldn't go online and watch services, so he walked into a physical church building 
not knowing that it was the most conservative fundamental church in his town. And he'd never been to church. So he had no idea what was acceptable. And so he walks in, no shoes, long hair, in a room filled with people in suits and dresses. And in his bell bottoms and bare feet, he walks all the way up to the front of the church, in front of the pulpit, and sits down in the middle of the aisle with his legs crossed. As you can imagine, service comes, dead stop. At about that time, the most respected and distinguished man in the church, white-haired deacon in his 80s, got up out of his seat and began to walk towards this man, and everyone thought, here it comes. And without saying a word, he walked up to the young man, lowered his arthritic, riddled frame slowly onto the floor next to him, slipped off his wingtip shoes, and put his arm around him for the duration of the service all the way into the end when the hippie gave his life to Jesus Christ. What a perfect picture of the gospel. That anybody and everybody who walks through the doors of the church should be made to feel like a somebody even if they look like a nobody because Jesus died to save everybody. Red and yellow, black and white, they really are precious in his sight. Would you bow your heads this morning? With our heads bowed this morning, would you just pray right now and say, God, as I go about my week this week, I'm going to encounter all kinds of people who are not like me. People of influence, people of affluence. People of little means, people who speak English, people who don't, people who look like me, people who vote like me, people who behave like me. Would you pray right now? God, as I go about my week this week, let me live this week with the deep driving conviction. That every single person I encounter is made in the image of God and is worthy of love and dignity. People on the other side of a jail cell, people on the other side of the tracks, people working in the C-suite, people emptying their trash. Would you pray that right now? God, let me live this week with a deep conviction that every single person is an image bearer worthy of love and respect. And would you pray right now? God, help me to see people through the eyes of Jesus. Not with disdain, not with judgment, 
but with compassion. And would you pray lastly this risky prayer? God, help me to move towards those people who are not like me instead of away from them. Father, I pray that as we begin Missions Week, Missions Month, God, we would do so, not just to learn some things or to talk about some things, but God, to live as sent people, building relationships with people, not because of what we think they can do or they've achieved or how they look or what they have. But because these are people that Christ died for. And so, Lord, convict us of thinking that somehow we're the source of all of our blessing. God, help us to live with a humble reminder that, Lord, you're the author of promotion and provision. God, help us to take risks to get the gospel out to people who are far from you that we often don't even understand. God, we're most grateful that Jesus showed no partiality in his love for us. We were unworthy and actively sinning against him. But he loved us unconditionally. May we never get over the gospel of Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.